Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, good morning. How are we? Good. Good. All right, let's go. Mark chapter 13. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's get to it. Mark chapter 13, if you're uh, not used to finding a Bible or using a Bible and you don't have a Bible, I welcome you to use the one that's in the rack and the chair in front of you. I encourage you to use that and follow along with us. If you don't have one, you can keep that Bible as our gift to you, or maybe you just forgot yours today. Today in particular, next couple weeks, every Sunday, what am I talking about? Not just today in particular, it's really important to just follow along, and we just preach out of the Bible and so we're, we're continuing our months-long journey through Mark. And we find ourselves in a very important chapter about the end of the world. So, you know, we don't let up. Last week was the gospel and homosexuality. This week it's about the end of the world. Just one thing after another. Just a big fire hose, little mouth. So, um, we've got some work to do today. We're going to take two weeks to get through this chapter. And so um, our plan is to work about halfway through this week and then finish it up. Now, here's the deal. When you talk about end times, um, and especially Mark chapter 13, which is paralleled in in, uh, Matthew chapter 24, is that generally, I think, Christians, well-meaning Christians, can fall off on the two sides of the road, the ditches on two sides of the road. On one ditch, I think sometimes Christians, uh, out of a right desire to care deeply about the truth of the Word of God, sometimes sort of get into the weeds a little bit, and specifically about this area of doctrine, about the end times, tend to really want a whole bunch of clarity and a lot of specificity, and have a system, and there's lots of different views, and friends, this is one particular area of doctrine in the Bible, which... Uh, really has some ambiguity to it. And I think Christians should approach it with some certainty and confidence on some of the high issues, but on some of the specifics about the timing and different views about the millennium, I think Christians should be very humble. And so sometimes we kind of get in the weeds and we sort of miss the, the bigger point. And then the other ditch that we fall off into, and I think this is probably where a lot of people are maybe in this room, is that you're like, ah, well, you know... I believe in the Bible, I believe Jesus is coming back, but this stuff really doesn't matter. So, you know, let's just kind of get on to the stuff that's going to help me live through this week. You know, I, I, want, to, I want to have a better Tuesday. And all of this stuff about Jesus coming back, I mean, come on, really? Is it that important? And that's just as much of an error, because what happens in both, both ditches is that this great and glorious truth, which God has given us in His Bible, is given to do something in our souls to actually land on us and to make us more like Jesus and to cause us to long for, as Ron prayed this morning and during our call to worship, the, the age that is to come. So um, let's work our way through this. Let me, let me read the scripture and then we'll go back through it. And so here's our, our plan. I read a lot of old Puritans and this is where they would write their sermons. Um, if you're you know, just bored on a Saturday afternoon and maybe you're having trouble sleeping, uh, maybe I can give you some Puritan sermons. Actually, they're wonderfully rich and full of good doctrine. But they would start with the doctrine 
and then they would, they would work out all of this application. So we're going to read through the scripture, kind of work our way through it, and we're going to look at one huge piece of doctrine that I think comes out of this truth. And don't be scared by that word doctrine. That's a good word. It just means truth. We all have a doctrine. Maybe some of our doctrine is, is that we don't care about doctrine. That's a doctrine. Do you, do you get that? I mean, we all have a set of truths that governs our lives. And then from this one overarching piece of doctrine, we're going to look at how this, this great truth that Jesus is coming again and this world is not all that there is should actually land on our lives and what difference it should make. So uh, let's read. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you can find it on page 849. Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great things? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it would not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, 
no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Well, lots, lots to digest, lots to think about. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us and then let's work our way back through, through this text. Father, we, we come to you now with such gratefulness. And humility, as Jeremy mentioned, there are millions and millions and millions of people across this earth that do not have the blessings of your providence that we enjoy. I pray that that would not produce in us a spiritual lethargy and laziness and self-absorption, but it would produce in us a humility and a passion to see and savor Jesus more and then proclaim Jesus more fervently to our neighbor and the nations. And for my friends that are in this room, Lord, that are not yet followers of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you, by your kindness, would cause them to pass from death to life. I pray that you would resurrect them this morning and that you would breathe life so that they would believe and see and hear and trust in Jesus. I pray for my friends that are already Christians in this room that we would be encouraged by these words today and the promise of Jesus' return. And I pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what our plan is this morning as we work through. Here's, this is absolutely key, I think, to understanding this chapter, which we're going to work halfway through it, and then next week we'll look at the other half is that Jesus, after he has spent the last few chapters in this conflict, really, of answering his critics, which was primarily the Sanhedrin, or this, this sort of council of Pharisees and, and um, scribes and Sadducees, this sort of ruling council of all of the religious elite, are peppering Jesus with questions that we've been going through for the past month or so, which was Mark chapter 11 and 12. And remember, all of this takes place in the last week of Jesus' life. And so he leaves the temple after all of these confrontations, after he dismantles the poor understanding of these religious leaders. And now he pronounces that this beautiful, in fact, these disciples are going with him, and they're like, wow, Jesus, look at this amazing building. And almost just sort of as a secondhand comment, he says that, this building, this beautiful temple is going to be completely dismantled. Jesus is really just issuing this prophecy, really this judgment on this temple that came to symbolize that the Jews really came to symbolize their whole religious life. And then Jesus goes and he sits on the Mount of Olives and he begins to teach about his second coming and really the end of all things. And what is extremely important for us to understand as we work through this is that we need to see kind of the dual horizons that Jesus is speaking about here. There's really two things happening in Mark chapter 13. 
is that Jesus is speaking of a, of a near event which is going to be the actual physical destruction of the temple. And we know from history that Rome came and completely destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So about 40 years after Jesus utters these words, we know that physically what he spoke of actually happened. And so in one sense, Jesus is speaking about that real historical event that happened about 40 years after he uttered this prophecy. But yet there's another horizon to what Jesus is speaking about here. And it's his second coming, the end of the age, which is an event that has yet to take place. And what makes Mark chapter 13 and its parallel in, in Matthew chapter 24 difficult to interpret and understand is that Jesus in his answer to the disciples about what the sign will be of these things is in he kind of seems to go back he intertwines he goes back and forth between speaking about this physical event that happened in AD 70 and this event that ultimately that that physical destruction of the temple foreshadows and mirrors which is his second coming And I think what happens is sometimes if we try and speak too confidently about exactly what Jesus is saying and which piece fits where, sometimes we can kind of miss the forest from the trees. And so we're going to work through back through through this humbly, realizing that there are two horizons to Jesus' answer. So Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. Just to give you a little background about what the temple was. So in the Old Testament, okay, In the Old Testament, God moves on this King David, and King David has this vision to build a temple, and he doesn't actually build it, but his son Solomon builds it. And so there's this huge temple that becomes the center of Old Testament Jewish life, where where God meets them. Instead of wandering in the desert in a tent, he finally meets them in this city, the city of King David, Jerusalem. But, of course, this temple is destroyed. God's people are, are, are rebellious, and these foreign kings, these foreign a pagan empires destroy, uh, they take God's people captive, the, the, the temple goes into ruins. And so then we see at the end of the Old Testament, during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, we see these pagan kings allowing God's people to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so the temple is rebuilt, and that is the last, the end of the Old Testament, the last 400 years before we get to Matthew. And then we see during New Testament times, during Jesus' life, just prior to and during Jesus' life, King Herod rebuilds. He adds on to this temple that was rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra and the other leaders at the end of the Old Testament. So we have this temple that is absolutely huge. I mean, it's not just like, you know, a church or the big Baptist church maybe on the corner. It's not just some big, beautiful building. When Herod added on to this temple... Just to get, because I know you're a football crowd and you're all ready for football season to start and so am I. I can't wait. I think camp's open next week, whatever. I mean, we're just we're counting down in my house just to when football season starts. But imagine this. This temple, 15 football fields could fit in this temple, in the space that this temple occupied. And it represented the essence of what it meant to be Jewish. It was this place, this sacred place where God in the Old Testament was pointing His people to this. Remember this Old Testament law and the sacrificial system, which was never meant to be permanent, by the way, but which was meant to foreshadow and point them towards this sacrifice that which would come, which was Jesus. This temple represented all that it meant to be Jewish. 
And so Jesus here is saying that this thing is going to be absolutely destroyed. Jesus has just spiritually dismantled the religion of the Sanhedrin and their flawed understanding of what the Old Testament was pointing to. And now he prophesies about the physical dismantling of the very center and symbol of Jewish life. And so, in verse 3, after he just throws this phrase out there, imagine that it would be just like, I mean, it just completely turned the disciples upside down. It would be like if we went on a little field trip to Washington, D.C., and our, you know, the leader just, as we were kind of walking over to get something, he said, oh, by the way, the White House and, you know, the Washington Monument and the U.S. Capitol, all that's going to, it's going to be completely destroyed. What? 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 That needs some further explanation. And so in verse 3, Jesus gives that further, further explanation. So let's go back to verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, now, can you imagine, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, you can't just throw that out there and just walk off. I mean, that's the ultimate kind of drop in the mic situation. Oh yeah, this is going to be gone. Boom, walk off. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Tell us a little bit more. Verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So what Jesus is saying here is, again, remember, there's this dual horizon here. There's this event that's coming, the destruction of the temple, but yet Jesus also clearly is speaking about this greater event of His coming. And so Jesus is saying that, these things, is it the temple being destroyed or is it his second coming? We're not sure. That there's going to be signs that accompany this, that precede this. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes. And, and then he says it will be like birth pangs. Like, like a mother that's going into labor. As I understand it, I've, I've been a, a bystander in four deliveries. As I understand contractions come kind of closer apart. Is that kind of the way it works? I was sort of in a daze each time, holding onto the rail, almost fainting on all four children. But from what I understand is that contractions and birth pains, they become more and more frequent. And so, we know that what Jesus is saying here actually happened in the first century. There were wars and rebellions and Jewish groups rebelling against Rome and then finally Rome coming with the Emperor Titus and squashing Jewish rebellion and revolt and destroying the temple in AD 70. But in another sense, for the past two millennia, for the past 2,000 years, there have been wars and rumors of wars and increasing conflict amongst people. And friends, this has been going on since then. In fact, I was reading some history here about, about the, the age of the church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And there's only been like less than a decade in history since Jesus uttered these words where there were actually no recorded wars between people groups. Right? And so we're more maybe tuned into it now because we have the breaking news segment on Fox News. Right? Doesn't that just drive you nuts? 
Like it used to be when they first discovered this little breaking news thing, it was actually breaking news. Now it's like, no, 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 breaking news. President Obama is getting off the helicopter. Oh, 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 oh. I mean, you really thought something was happening and it's just, you know, something just every day. We're, we're so tuned in to 24-hour news cycles is that we can actually think that like this past 10 years is actually more turbulent than the previous 2000. But friends, that's not the case. Remember last week, when we, it's all been going downhill since Genesis chapter 3 in one sense. And Jesus is saying here that this age before He comes again, not just before the temple being destroyed, will be marked by these increasing wars and conflict and just the earth will be shaken. He continues in verse 9, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And we know that this actually happened with these apostles that Jesus was speaking to and his disciples. They were. In fact, that's much of what happens in the book of Acts. We see that these apostles being handed over, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, these early apostles, Peter, James, and John being handed over, Paul later on towards the end of the book of Acts being handed over before the the leaders and the rulers of the Roman Empire having to bear witness for Jesus. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all men. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So again, there is a near fulfillment of what Jesus has said here that we see in the book of Acts by the apostles and the disciples being handed over, beaten in synagogues, standing before rulers. But there is also this, this, this far fulfillment that for, the, for really the age of the church, since Jesus' resurrection, the church has been persecuted. And, and even now, although we may not feel it in America, as much as our brothers and sisters around the world, people are being handed over to councils. They're standing before governors and kings, having to bear witness before Jesus. And Jesus is saying that this will typify the world before this far fulfillment of Him coming again. And He says here, and I was so touched by by what Jeremy said, He says in verse 10 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now this is one of those verses that I think commentators and Biblical scholars just tear apart. and People that, that want to be kind of on either side. They want to think about the timing of Jesus' second coming. And some people wonder, well, has the gospel been proclaimed to all nations? Or has it not? Has everybody heard? Is, there some, is the clock run out on the time when Jesus can come back? I, I, friends, I think when we think about that too deeply, I think we lose the force of what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that before He comes again... His people, their mission in life is to preach the gospel and to get the gospel out. Not to wonder whether or not everybody is, has heard the gospel. He has not come back yet. We know that's clear. So therefore, the responsibility of Peter and James and John and the responsibility of everybody in this room who is a Christian is to get 
the gospel out. This isn't just some sort of 30,000 foot statement that the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. It's just sort of, oh wow, that's a cute little biblical phrase. Yeah, maybe we can throw that on a chart somewhere for our end times discussion. Friends, that needs to land on us. Who are the people that that is spoken to? The church. Us. And so it's our responsibility to get the gospel. Here's a question though. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? Like, if, if you were asked, what is the gospel? Would your answer be something like a lot of Americans who think they're Christians? Would it be something like, well, Jesus, is, he loves us and he's there to kind of help us out. And maybe quote out of context some verse like John 10, 10. Jesus wants us to live abundant life, you know. Friends, those may have aspects of truth in them, but the gospel... Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation. It is the good news that God is the holy and righteous creator of the universe. And he created you and me and every person that has ever lived in his image. And we, along with our first parents, Adam and Eve, forfeited our right, our privilege our relationship with God by rebelling against Him and every one of us, whether we're good little church kids or whether we're obvious criminals, have all sinned. And the consequence of that sin is separation from God. We have made ourselves completely unable to make ourselves right. In fact, the Bible says that it has killed us spiritually and we are by nature now children of wrath. And we stand condemned, completely unable to save ourselves. But God doesn't leave us there in that helpless state. He comes to us in the form of Jesus, God the Son, the perfect God-man who is fully God yet fully man. And he lives life in the flesh where we have failed. He completely obeys God's holiness and his righteousness which was pictured in the Old Testament law. And Jesus fulfills the righteousness of God and then lays down his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross and he absorbs God's punishment and God's holiness and God's wrath for all those that would turn and trust and believe in him and realize that their only hope for right standing with God is trusting in Jesus' righteousness and not their own. And those that do that prove themselves to be his children and are saved and now live a life of, of following Him and making His glory known. Friends, that is the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? You must know that. And Jesus says that this is what the church through the centuries must proclaim. And He says that you will be hated to these disciples and to us. We will be hated by all for my name's sake. I look at um, much of the American church today and isn't it just kind of sort of silly how we're sort of caught up in wanting to be liked by everybody? And Jesus clearly says here that this will mark what happened there in the near fulfillment of the destruction of the temple and it should mark Christians of all ages is that to some degree we will be hated by all for Jesus' name's sake. Now, I think there's a couple things we need to think about here. This doesn't mean that we need to be intentionally antagonistic, right? It doesn't give Christians a license to be legalistic jerks, you know? Just going around, you know, just screaming at people, 
being mad, just being complete knuckleheads. But it means that the gospel will offend. And to the degree that we try and pretty up and squirt sort of our little perfume on the gospel and make it more palatable, we, we, we betray the truth of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, for the word, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So friends, do you realize that the, that the self-help gospel doesn't work like it's, it's false? And, and so, so do, do you realize that when we try and pretty the gospel up by, by making it palatable and acceptable and merely a means to helping us live a better life here on this earth, we lose the gospel. Do you see that? And by the way, friends, if you're in this room and you're not yet a Christian and there's part of you that kind of thinks that the message of Christianity is silly and sort of foolish, I I agree with you. To To the human mind, it's silly. A God who could squash us all comes and humbles himself and becomes a baby in a manger and lets his diaper be changed by his very creation and then grows up to be a man completely innocent and then lets that very creation crucify him? That's folly. I agree with you. And it is the power of God unto salvation for all that trust in it. Do you see the spectacular grace and humility of it? So you're thinking, this, doesn't, this is silly. This doesn't follow human logic. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that is the good news. And, and believing that isn't a matter of intellectual um, assent. It's a matter of faith that God must give you. Remember what I just said in the gospel. You're, you're dead in your sins before you come to Christ. And believing that simple, humble, by the world standards, foolish message Believing that is something that only God can bring about in your heart. So yeah, friends, you're completely, you're completely at God's mercy for believing the message of the gospel. And Christians, we need to know that and realize that much of the world will hate us for that message. Verse 14, and he says, and this is an interesting little phrase here. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So what is this abomination of desolation? It sounds really terrible, and it is. And again, there is this dual horizon to what Jesus is saying. There, I think there's, in a sense there's this sort of immediate fulfillment of that, but ultimately it's pointing towards this greater fulfillment of this thing that will happen called the abomination of desolation that will happen when Jesus comes again, which is yet to happen. So in the Old Testament, God raises up this prophet named Daniel. And he speaks about 
centuries in the future where there will be this time when there is this abomination of desolation. So what is that? That is when evil completely assaults God. And what Daniel was speaking of and what Jesus is speaking of, both near and far, is this time when there will be this sacrilege in the place, the temple, this holy place. And so this happens in in AD 70 when the Roman Emperor Titus comes and he destroys the temple and really there on that very spot in this holy of holies sets him up as God. He, he, he really he blasphemes God in this incredible abomination, stands in the holy place and exalts himself as God, completely affronting God's holiness. But yet, there's something more that's coming. There's, there's this time when, when the Antichrist himself will come and will set himself up. Whether it be in a physical temple, I think probably it means more just amongst the people of God and will lead many astray. So this is what Paul writes after this time. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And so Jesus has spoken about this time when there will be this abomination. And that happens in one sense when the temple is destroyed and the Roman emperor sets himself up as, as God. Of course, he's, he's wrong, but he sets himself up. And now Paul is speaking about the ultimate fulfillment of this when there will be this assault at the end of the age against God by the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. And he says, we... Verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. So friends, this is not for us to be freaked out about, right? There's not going to be... This is something that shouldn't cause Christians to fear. Or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he says, don't be led astray by people spooking you out about the timing of these events. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, it's another phrase in the Bible for the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so Paul is speaking about the far fulfillment of this, which is yet to happen. There will be this complete abomination, an assault against God's holiness, where the Antichrist, whether it be a singular person, or whether it be a movement, or whatever, I think we need to be humble about being too specific about that, will finally and fully, towards the end of this age, exalt itself against God before Jesus comes. And so, Jesus is saying that this is coming. It happened to a, a lesser degree in some extent in AD 70, but ultimately it will finally and fully happen when, when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, again, whether that's a person or a movement or an idea or a false religion, finally and fully assaults God before Jesus comes. And friends, this is a perfect example of how this can remain sort of in the clouds and actually, ever, actually never touch down in our life. So Christians, over the, at least as long as I've been alive, was born in 1971, um, can spend a lot of time sort of thinking about this. Like, okay, so 
And I remember when I was a kid, remember Gorbachev, the Soviet Union, the, the, the uh, leader of the Soviet Union? And he had this strange birthmark on his head. And I remember all, like, just the, the kind of the crazy Christians that wanted to diagram, you know, that tattoo. Oh, is it, is it saying something to us? Is Gorbachev the Antichrist, right? Oh, no, actually, he was a reformer that opened the doors to the gospel. Oh, anyway, so, okay, so it wasn't Gorbachev. Um, so so maybe, it's, maybe it's Saddam Hussein. Maybe he's the Antichrist, right? Or maybe it's that crazy Iranian cat who for some reason we keep letting speak at the United Nations, Ahmadinejad, right? So maybe it's him, right? Or maybe it's this person. Or maybe Look, it may be, it may be. But friends, we miss the force of this is that there are Antichrists. There's lawlessness at work in my own heart. And so I can be looking into the clouds for this literal fulfillment of prophecy which I I am all for thinking about and I can miss the fact that there are antichrist, lawlessness, things against God that are continually setting themselves up in my own heart that I need to be aware of. And Jesus says, beware of these things. Beware of this grand evil And this coming of the end of the age. But beware of these things that can even set themselves up in your own life. This should cause us to examine our lives and look for areas in the temples of our hearts. Where the abomination of desolation, evil, sin, rebellion against God sets itself up. Let's finish up verse 20 through 23. And if the Lord had not cut short... The days no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's handle a couple things before we bring this down for a landing. Is that Jesus speaks there of the elect whom he chose, who God chose. So I know that can be a touchy issue for Christians. Um, What does the elect mean? When the Bible speaks of the elect, it is speaking about God's people. And the idea of election or God choosing is all through the Bible. Christians disagree. Everybody believes that there is an elect or in election or in predestination or that God has a people. All Christians believe that. Where they disagree is upon what basis does God elect them or choose them. Some Christians believe that God elects them or chooses them based on some foreseen faith in them or some good in them. Other Christians believe that God chooses and elects His people before the foundations of the earth because of His free and good grace, because of nothing good in them, but solely because of His love for them. Pastors and elders here um, believe the, the latter, But regardless of what you believe about that, friends, what's happening here is Jesus is saying that God has a people. And he's not saying that they can lose their salvation because it says that he would even draw away some elect. But he's saying that God is superintending the security and the preservation of his elect so that he will finally and fully bring about their salvation. In fact... He is, whatever this phrase means, He is shortening the days to ensure the preservation of His people. And so God is sovereignly, providentially controlling human history 
guarding his people from falling away, even though they may be tugged and pulled by sin and by evil and by lawlessness and even the Antichrist himself, God loses none of his people. So, what can we gather from, from this difficult half of Mark chapter 13 that we've worked through? Some of you, I'm sure your eyes are in the back of your head. You're like, abomination of humana, humana, what? Say that again. You're freaking me out, Brad. Here's what you need to know as we work through Mark 13 last, this week and next week. This is what I think you should grab a hold of. It's the truth about Jesus' second coming. There's much more to be studied. Some of you will have interest to go much deeper. In fact, a few months ago, Wayne and I did a Saturday seminar on the end times. And we, we spent about four hours on our Saturday. We've got that audio and video and all of the notes on the website if you want to go deeper into these things. But this is what I think every Christian should know. The truth of Jesus' second coming. We have it on the screen. Jesus will come again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, and will finally and fully vanquish Satan and all evil and consummate his kingdom forever and ever. So friends, if you're a Christian and you're trusting in Christ, you can be sure and certain of this, that Jesus is coming again to finally and fully set all things straight. And Jesus offers these words on, on the mountain of olives there, the Olivet Discourse that we've just read, half of that chapter, to encourage Christians, not to freak them out, but to give them the certainty that He is coming again. This is what, a little bit more elaborate uh, explanation of that from our statement of faith. If you're a member of Crosspoint, this is what you hold to as our statement of faith. And I think that any Christian from the time of the apostles would agree with this statement. The restoration of all things. Listen to this beautiful statement. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with His holy angels. When He will exercise His role as final judge and His kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the resurrection. You can go back and look at that message if you missed it and how important it is to understand that we are not just sort of spirit beings. We, our bodies will be finally resurrected and glorified and, 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 and reunited and glorified with Jesus forever. So we believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell as our Lord Himself taught, and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of Him who sits on the throne of the Lamb in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. So that's the future for every person in this room who's trusting in Christ. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience suffering and triumph of Christ. And oh friends, I long for that day because maybe more so than others, pastors, preachers of the gospel, not only deal with their own sin, but they deal with the difficulty and strife of life of a whole congregation of people. And there are time, friends, when I sit in my chair in my office and I long for the day when sin and, and disease and our brokenness will be finally and fully conquered. And this is what that is speaking of. When all sin will be purged and its wretched effects forever banished. And God will be all in all and His people will be enthralled by the immediacy of His in 
ineffable holiness. Yes, I had to look it up. It's such a beautiful word. Ineffable, it means too awesome for words. Right? So we will be enthralled by the immediacy of His awesomeness, which can't be explained. And everything will be to the praise of His glorious grace. And so Christians can believe that, and that's what this chapter is for. So now let's land this plane and we'll be out of here. What does this mean to my life on Tuesday? What good is this? Like, Brad, man, last week was pretty good and interesting. I was on, this was boring, man. Come on. Give me something that'll help me at the water cooler on Thursday. Here it is. Put this in your pocket. Start packing the tobacco in and get ready to puff on it because you need this and I need this. And please don't send me an email. I'm not advocating smoking. Because Jesus is coming back and will finally and fully conquer Satan and all evil and set all things right, number one, Christians should expect tribulation in this life. Friends, this is not heaven. And whatever you believe about the timing of the end times and whatever you believe about the tribulation, whether the church will have to face it and endure it to some degree or whether the church will be ripped out of it, friends, know this, that there are Christians right now not living in America who are going through incredible amounts of persecution and tribulation. And so I believe it's a little arrogant for Christians in America to sort of think, oh, well, well the church will be raptured out of the tribulation. Regardless of which, I'm not banging on that belief. Or I'm not, look, I get, whatever you believe about that. But friends, this world, this life, Christians right now are going through very difficult times. And Jesus is telling us is that the, the world will hate the true preaching of the gospel. And we should expect difficulty and trial in this life. And all of that is not because God is messing with us, But because like J.I. Packer says, that beautiful old English writer, he says that God seeks the fellowship of His people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to Himself. Just like you discipline and maybe even pull out the belt on your own children, God does the same for His people. And at times causes us to go through trial not because he's not there but to detach our hands from these 80 or 90 years so that we might grab a hold of him Peter writes do not be surprised friends when you go through a fiery trial but rejoice that you're participating in the sufferings of Christ number two Christians need not fear but should long for Jesus' return right So if my life is not these 90 years, and if no matter what happens to me in these 90 years, or no matter how, who, or what happens, or what the timing of things is, if I know that ultimately Jesus is coming back to vanquish evil, to set all things right, to cure every disease, to reconcile everything that is out of joint, I need not fear, but I should long for Jesus' return. And friends, when we look at things that are sometimes hard to understand. We don't need to be spooked by looking at the end times or even reading about things like the abomination of desolation. But we should long, it should cause us to lean forward in our seats because we know that Jesus is coming again and we need not fear. And one of my biggest critiques of Christian teachers that are really into this is I think sometimes they sort of 
they, they deal in the currency of fear to sell books and things, and they just want to spook people. Right? Jennifer and I used to be involved in this campus ministry at the University of Florida when she was going through her residency. And there was this guy there that was teaching that we had all received the mark of the beast by the little barcode, you know, that you scan in the... Um, did you scan in the store? And he was talking about how if you look at the numbers there, it's kind of 666 and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, he had all these students just freaking out. Like, ah, ah, ah. I mean, like, they, they, they couldn't buy anything anymore. And, and, and he was a good, well-meaning brother, but, but the tenor of what he was teaching about the end of the age was spooking Christians out. Friends, We should long for this. He will lose none of his people. If you are a child of God, read John 10. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Not cancer, not evil, not the Antichrist. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. So if your life is 20 years or 90 years, friends, you are his forever and ever and ever, friends. And friends, listen, listen, that's hard. Do you realize how hard that is for Americans to grab a hold of? Because we are the most comfortable, most lazy, most self-absorbed people maybe in the history of the church. Are we not? Yeah, give me a north-south on that. We need not fear but long for Jesus' return. Three. Jesus' return should motivate Christians to proclaim the gospel to all nations. Oh, friends, isn't that what Jeremy shared with us earlier? Jesus says that the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And in the original language, that, that word all nations literally means all people groups. So it's not just like, oh, well, it's take, it, we, we've taken the gospel to that place. No, it's all people groups. So there are people groups within these Central Asian republics that have never heard the gospel. There are people groups, maybe even in America, that have never heard the gospel. And Jesus is saying that He's coming back and there's coming a day when finally and fully the timeline of the ability of men and women who have not heard about Jesus will come to an end and their opportunity to repent will come to an end. And the church must be about proclaiming the gospel, right? But American Christians right now are looking at their watch thinking about, oh, Brad's going a little long today. I need to get a good seat at the restaurant. And the Brit- round four, Tiger's in second place. And so we care more about watching the end of a stupid golf tournament than we do actually about getting the gospel out to the nations, don't we? Don't we, friends? And this isn't to produce guilt in us. Look, I'm not just beating you up so that you'll give your penance this week and come back as good little boys and girls next week, all charged up for the Great Commission. Friends, that's not my my plan here. I'm not ruining your Sunday afternoon. I'm saying that there needs to be this abiding, lasting sense on the life of every Christian who believes the gospel that they are here for a reason, right? That your house is yours for a reason. That your stuff is yours for a reason. That you live in this city for a reason. And that reason is everything in your life is pointed towards making Jesus known and cherished and loved by those whom He is saving to your neighbors in the nations. So everything, right? So it's not Christianity on Sunday and then the rest of my life get a couple good little principles on Sunday then the rest of my life a couple little points on how to do this then the rest of my life. Friends, that's how people that don't understand the gospel live. 
But Jesus is saying here is that it is our responsibility to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And so that should be the driving force of every Christian that claims Christ that lives in this, in this room today. So some of us, like the Orliches, will be called to go. And I pray that they are the first of many. In fact, I pray, wouldn't that be wonderful if we just emptied this room uh, uh, because everybody's leaving for the mission field? That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. But most of us may not be called to go, but we are called to go to our neighbor and to help send missionaries to go to every end of the earth. So yearly we have a missions convention. This January we're going to have a brother come and speak to us about our responsibility as a church to take the gospel. Come to that. Come to that. Go to that board outside with the map and look at the missionaries that we support on a monthly basis and pray for them and be involved and think about how your life might help point and send people to take the gospel to the nations. But don't just stop there. Because the objection is, oh, well, Brad, what about the people down the street? Yeah, what about the people down the street? So let's orient our lives. Let's spend our money. Let's, or, let's, let's plan our time so that we are witnesses to our neighbors as well. What can you do? You can engage a friend in conversation and ask them if you can pray for them and build rapport so that maybe you invite that friend to your community group or to church and over time point them to Jesus. Witnessing for Jesus is not the Lone Ranger sport. It's not you going at it your own. It's life together as a local church. Does that motivate you? Friends, I confess that oftentimes I just fall asleep on that. And I get more worried about just getting through a Sunday and preaching a good sermon than I do about proclaiming the gospel to all nations. And I repent of that to you. And fourthly and finally, the promise of Jesus' return assures us that God is in control of the future. He is providentially in control of all human history. Mark 13 and verses in the Bible that speak of the end of this age should put steel in our spines because we know the end which is really just the beginning of his final and full reign over all things friends the world is not our home we as Christians can know in whom we have believed Paul puts it this way 2 Timothy 1 but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard that until that day what has been entrusted to me. So I end with three questions for three different groups of people. I think there, most of the people in this room are true Christians. Are we living our lives in light of Jesus' return? Is this truth a magnet that draws us toward God? Or have we bought the self-absorbed false gospel of America and we live lives of such self-absorption and comfort that we betray the greatest of all realities that this world is not our home? Are we living our lives in the light of Jesus' return?
second group of people, and I think there are some in this room that fit this description, what I'll call nominal or cultural Christians, which actually I don't think you really are a Christian. I think you think you are, but you're not. I think there's people like that all over our city. Because maybe you grew up in church or you just attend somewhere, you think you're right with God, but you're not truly trusting in Christ. You're still rebelling against Him and taking your sin side against God. You think you're right with God and you merely pick and choose parts of the Bible that you perceive will help you navigate through life better. And when we get to stuff like this, you're like, ah, that's weird, that's strange. Okay, whatever, let's get back to some more practical stuff. Friends, do you realize that there's nothing more practical than the judge of all the earth coming again? You realize, friends, that this is true reality. Let this, I, I pray that this would cause you to wake up. It would be like a smelling salt underneath your nose spiritually so that you would look up and see the reality of Jesus. And then I think probably thirdly, and I've addressed you already, that there are people in this room who know themselves not to be Christians. And you think all of this talk about the end of the earth and strange apocalyptic events is kind of strange and crazy. Yeah, maybe some Christians have spoken about these things in the past in less than helpful ways. But friends, do you, do you see that the Bible is very clear that Jesus says that he is coming again and he will judge all. And you will be among that number. And do you see that Jesus gives these words that we see coming to fulfillment? And part of why Jesus utters these words is as a, as a sort of apologetic, a witness to you. So that you will look around the world and see that Jesus' words are actually happening before your very eyes. So that you would look up and see him and trust him that you are ready for that day when he does come again. I encourage you, friend, to look to Jesus even now. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so tempted to just kind of float through life as a comfortable middle-class Christian in America. That is the great temptation of my life. And I think maybe the lives of most of my friends in this room. We build a sort of false sense, like a cocoon of prosperity around our lives. And we're, we're untouched seemingly by the reality of sin and judgment and Jesus' conquering of death and evil. and You know, that just seems so distant and far off. And Can I just do a little Bible study and learn a little bit more so that I can, you know, be more fulfilled? Or that type of weak, self-absorbed, view of the Bible is just such a great temptation for me and and I think probably for my friends here. Would you lift our eyes as we read through this chapter and would we see a risen and victorious and conquering returning king 
And would that melt our hearts, melt our self-absorption, and would it put steel in our spines, and and would we long for that day, and would it would it fuel missions in this church? Would it would it fuel gospel witness, and would it fuel our fight against sin and laziness? Because you are coming again, and this world is not our home. Jesus is not just a a sacrificed and crucified king. He is a resurrected, victorious, reigning and conquering king. I pray that we would see that today. And that Christians would worship you and arrange their lives in light of that. People that are not yet trusting in Jesus would see him and bow to him and trust in him. Even now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.